Welcome to another inspirational message from the chapel. We pray this message encourages and inspires you. If you would like any more information, check out our website, thechapelcollective.com.au. Welcome back to 8.34.2024. We are kicking off a new study for a new year, and it is one of the most pivotal texts of the Old Testament. We are going to study the book of Isaiah. And for the next 25 minutes, I get the privilege to kick us off. Now, we're not actually going to start chapter one until next week. So rather today, we're going to look at the background and the context of the book and where it fits in the history of Israel, in the history of the world, and how it relates to us in our Christian faith today. So to do this, we actually need to rewind. We need to set the scene of where the Israelites are as a people. And only then can we be poised to really understand what these 66 chapters of Isaiah really mean. So let's rewind all the way back to Genesis. What we see in Genesis in the beginning of things is a world that is bent on sin and evil. And against the backdrop of a fallen, corrupt world, God calls this one man named Abraham to leave his homeland, to leave his culture, to leave his past and to live a life that is totally set apart, set apart from culture and a life that is marked by devotion and obedience to God. God actually creates a covenant with Abraham that covers three main themes, children, a promised land and a promise that all the people of the world will be blessed through Abraham and his descendants. This covenant and calling is passed down to Abraham's son Isaac and in turn to his son Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons who form the 12 tribes that make up the nation of Israel and they continue to carry this covenant. The promise of descendants, the promise of a land and the promise that all the world will be blessed through them. Abraham's descendants become a nation that is called to be set apart from those around them. A nation that is marked by devotion and obedience to God. A nation through whom all the people of the world will one day be blessed. And while that nation has many high points, we also see that they often monumentally get it wrong. That rather than living as set apart, they so often fall short, conforming to the evil ways of the world that surrounds them. And they repeatedly turn their back on this one true God. Yet despite all their failings, God continues to call them his people to be patient with them, to draw them to himself. And though they repeatedly break their end of the covenant, God always keeps his end. I am so grateful as we read the Old Testament and read the example of the Israelites that we serve a God who is patient and gracious. And like the Israelites, we each of us are called to be set apart from our culture and to live a life of devotion to God. Now, I don't know about you, you guys might all be perfect, but I often get it wrong on a monumental scale. But just as God was so patient with the Israelites, so he is patient with me, for which I am forever thankful. As the nation of Israel grows in these 12 tribes, they're initially a theocracy, so a people living directly under the kingship of God, with management undertaken by these people called the judges. But the Israelites, they eventually become unhappy with this arrangement. They start looking at the nations around them and they start to compare themselves. They want to be like their culture. Remember, the very culture that they're called to be set apart from. All the other nations are ruled by a king, so Israel says, we want a king too. Instead of looking only to God for how they should live, the Israelites start to look side to side. And they cave to the pressure to conform to their culture, to be like the world. 
How often are we like the Israelites, looking at the world around us for our example instead of looking to God? So they come and they say, no, we want a king. We want to be like the nations around us. And God's response to this request for a king is that they have rejected me as their king. And he warns the Israelites that conforming to the pattern of the world around them by appointing a king will not go well for them. And a human king will eventually become a source of oppression for them. But despite this, the people are insistent. They say, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations, which is exactly what they have been called not to be. But they demand a king and we enter the next stage of the Israelite history. We call it the monarchy. So under their demands, a king is appointed. And for the first three rulers, the kingdom of Israel remains united under a single rule. First, we have the people's choice, King Saul, then King David, and then his son, King Solomon. And after this, the kingdom breaks into two. We have the southern kingdom, Judah, and the northern kingdom, Israel, each with their own king. And while there are a few good kings who get a mention through the years, the vast majority are bad kings. And there is a slow and steady moral decay of the Israelites and they descend into idol worship and pagan practice and oppression of the poor. They rebel against their covenant with God, just as God warned them would happen. And the variable faithfulness of the Israelites is also reflected on a political level. When the people humble themselves and come back to God, they experience periods of political success and stability. But when they turn their back on their covenant with God and embrace the culture around them, their political position also diminishes. So there's two main empires to be aware of at this point, and that's the Assyrian Empire and the Babylonian Empire. The Assyrian Empire originated in what we would know as Iraq today, and they reached the height of their power in the 8th and 7th centuries BC. The northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, fell to Assyria in 723 BC. And then the next empire to rise in the Middle East is Babylon, which is sometimes referred to as the Chaldean Empire. You might see that written in your Bible. You might remember us reading about King Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. So he came to power in Babylon in 604 BC, and under him, Babylon controlled most of the Middle East throughout the 6th century BC. And in 586, Jerusalem and subsequently the entire southern nation of Judah fell to Babylon. Now, you're probably saying at this point, Phoebe, this is extremely boring. We didn't come here for a history lesson. But hang in there. Because knowing this background as we come to read Isaiah helps us understand the meaning of the text. And not only that, it actually helps us to awe at God all the more. To recognise that no matter how tumultuous the political landscape was, God was always in control. He had a plan for how he was going to use that political landscape to ultimately bring about his purposes, which are all achieved in the life of Jesus. And despite the inconstancy and waywardness of the Israelites, God continues to speak to his people. His heart is still to draw them to himself. Throughout the Old Testament, various prophets were appointed to speak God's words to his people, and they received the words with a variable response. And the second half of the Old Testament is made up of the writings of these prophets. So with a long run-up, we reach Isaiah. Isaiah was one of these prophets. So he lived in the southern kingdom of Judah during the 8th century BC, during the height of the Assyrian Empire. It's about 100 years before the rise of Babylon. And Isaiah's ministry occurred during the reign of four kings, King Uzziah, King Jotham, King Ahaz, and King Hezekiah. King Uzziah was a powerful but proud king, and he went against the advice of the priests. His son was the righteous king, Jotham. Now, 2 Chronicles tells us Jotham walked steadfastly before the Lord, but despite this, the people continued in corruption. 
Following King Jotham came the wicked King Ahaz, and during his 16-year reign, Ahaz shut the doors of the temple, and he worshipped the pagan gods of the surrounding kingdoms, even sacrificing his own children. The last king of Isaiah's ministry was King Hezekiah, who was a good king. He repaired the temple, and he brought the nation to repentance, but he still had some major blunders. Isaiah's public ministry ended with King Hezekiah and the suggestion is that the next king, King Manasseh, was responsible for killing Isaiah. In Hebrews chapter 11, we get the hall of faith. Verse 37 describes how they were put to death by stoning, they were sawed in two, they were killed by the sword, the world was not worthy of them. The story goes that in that verse, when it talks about someone being sawed in two, that was Isaiah hiding inside a tree, no less. While Isaiah's public ministry ended with his death, his prophecies were written down and they were treasured by the faithful and they were passed down from generation to generation. And we know that as from you know, several hundred years BC, all the 66 chapters were compiled together as one single unified text. And the entirety of that text was discovered in 1947 as one of the Dead Sea Scrolls and the manuscript dated to 125 BC and that's an example of it right there. When we look at the book of Isaiah, knowing the background that we now do of the Israelites leading to this point, we can break the message of the book into two main messages. First is a message of judgment, and then it's followed by a message of hope. Isaiah warns the kings of God's judgment for their corruption and their rebellion against their covenant with him. God warns them that he will use the empires of Assyria and Babylon to judge them as they continue in idolatry and oppression of the poor. But it doesn't end there. The message of judgment is combined with a message of hope. Hope that God will one day fulfill all the covenant promises that have come before through a king that is coming from the line of David. Through this king, God's blessing and salvation will flow to all the nations to fulfill that Abrahamic covenant. And across the 66 chapters of Isaiah, we start with a message of judgment, but out of the judgment comes the seed of hope. So let's start with part one, chapters one to 39, the message of judgment. Isaiah accuses the city's leaders of rebellion, of idolatry, of injustice and oppression. And he warns them that God will send judgment for this rebellion in the form of the surrounding nations conquering them. The judgment will be like a purifying fire that burns away that which is evil, while that which is good and that which remains after the fire will remain as a seed that is repented and turned back to God. And from this purified seed will sprout a new Jerusalem. And this motif of the old wayward Jerusalem being purified by fire into the new complete Jerusalem is repeated over and over again throughout the book in a series of metaphors. In the metaphor of the tree, Israel is going to be chopped down like a tree and the stump will be burned. But following the destruction, that which remains of the stump will form a holy seed that will survive into the future and sprout a new tree, a metaphor of a new Jerusalem. God will use the nations of Assyria and Babylon to bring this judgment on Israel, to chop down the tree. But after this, God is sending a new king, Emmanuel, which means God with us, who will set us free from violent and oppressive empires. It's a shoot from the old stump of King David's family. Isaiah 11.1 says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is King David's father. And from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. This new king will be empowered by God's spirit to rule over Jerusalem and will bring justice for the poor and all nations will look to this king. And his kingdom will transform all creation and bring peace to all nations. And this theme is repeated throughout the first half of Isaiah that because of their corruption, their wickedness, their idolatry, judgment is coming. 
and God will use the surrounding nations to bring this judgment on Israel. And what Isaiah predicts here comes to pass more than 100 years later. The kings of the day turned to their surrounding kingdoms to make alliances for protection. Isaiah warns them that this plan will backfire and he tells them that only by trusting in God and repentance will they receive protection. Remember, God's people are called to be set apart from the world and their culture, to live a life marked by devotion and trust in God. But God's people keep missing the mark and they keep falling back into worldliness. They keep trying to be like those nations around them. And it all comes to pass just as Isaiah predicts. During the reign of King Hezekiah, Assyria, the first of those empires, attacks Jerusalem. Isaiah challenges the king to trust in God rather than alliances with other nations. So Hezekiah prays for deliverance and the city is miraculously saved. Unfortunately, Hezekiah's faithfulness is short-lived and like his predecessors, Hezekiah turns to the world for security rather than turning to God. A delegation comes from Babylon and Hezekiah shows them everything that's in the temple and in the treasury. And he's trying to make another political alliance for protection. Isaiah chastises him and he predicts that this perceived ally, Babylon, will one day betray him and return to destroy Jerusalem. Isaiah says in chapter 39 verse 6, The time will surely come when everything in your palace will be carried off to Babylon. And this is actually exactly what happens more than 100 years later. Under the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon lays siege to Jerusalem and conquers it. 2 Kings 25 says they set fire to the temple of the Lord, the palace and all the houses of Jerusalem and carried into exile the people who remained in the city. And we know that 4,200 Israelites were carried to Babylon in captivity, including Daniel, who we studied when we read the book of Daniel last year. So part one of Isaiah ends with chapter 39, the fall of Jerusalem and the exile of the people to Babylon. But remember, it's not the end. Judgment is never the final word. Rather, it is the purifying fire burning away that which is corrupt and leaving behind only that which is pure, making way for the seed of hope and for the new glorious kingdom that we await. And so we enter part two, chapters 40 to 66. After the exile comes a new and purified Jerusalem. Part two of Isaiah is actually written in the perspective of someone after the fall of Jerusalem, i.e., a hundred years or so after Isaiah has died. And there's differing opinion around whether Isaiah still wrote these chapters but was writing prophetically to future generations or whether these chapters were written by the prophetic disciples of Isaiah. Either way, the chapters are written to Israelites who are living after the fall of Jerusalem and during this period of exile. And the message to those who remain after the fall is no longer a message of judgment. It is a message of hope. It is a proclamation that the time for hope is now, that Israel's sin has been dealt with and a new era is beginning. The time for hope is now. So Babylon falls to King Cyrus of Persia in 539 BC and King Cyrus allows those living in exile to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. Isaiah 45, 13, God says, I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free. But what we see in response is that Israel remains rebellious and hard-hearted. Chapter 48, verse 8 of Isaiah says, You have neither heard nor understood. From of old your ears have not been open. But even so, God is still on a mission, mission to bless the nations. So God is going to do a new thing. And here we are introduced to a new figure called God's servant. 
who is going to fulfill God's mission and do that which Israel has failed to do. Isaiah 42.1 says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. This verse is in fact quoted in Matthew 12 in reference to Jesus. The servant is empowered by God's spirit to restore God's people, to announce the good news and to bring God's kingdom and light to all the nations. But then we learn something surprising. We learn the way how this is going to occur, that the servant is going to be rejected. He's going to be beaten and he's going to be ultimately killed by his own people. And the servant's death will be the sacrifice for sin. Isaiah 53 says, He was despised and rejected by mankind. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. But after his death, the servant is alive again. By his death, he provided a way to make the people righteous. And those who turn from sin and accept God's servant are themselves called the servants. They become the seed that sprouts from the old stump. They inherit God's kingdom. They inhabit the new Jerusalem, a place from which God's justice and mercy and blessings flow out to all the nations of the world. And there we are all invited to know our creator and redeemer. Isaiah 62.12 says, They will be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. So the new Jerusalem is not a physical city. It's a metaphor. It's an image of an entirely renewed creation where there is no death or suffering. And in this new world, people from all nations are invited to come and join God's family. And the Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled. Isaiah 55, 1 to 3. Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. Listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. So who is the servant that brings God's new kingdom to the nations? The servant who was rejected by his people. The servant who was crushed for our iniquities. By whose wounds are we healed? His name is Jesus. Through the suffering of the servant king, God creates a new covenant and builds a family of all nations who await this renewed creation where God's kingdom finally comes on earth as it is in heaven. Isaiah 53, 6 and 7, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him, that's Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. 700 years before the life of Jesus, the gospel message was presented to us. Isaiah 7 verse 14, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. And all the promises and hope in Isaiah are fulfilled in Jesus, God with us. At the beginning of his ministry, Jesus stands in the synagogue. And in Luke 4, he quotes Isaiah when he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Isaiah 9 says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of darkness, a light has dawned. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called, say it with me if you know it, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. So who is the servant king? It is none other than Jesus. 
and what is his message for us? In part one of Isaiah, in the message of judgment, there are six woeful laments that are brought against the Israelites to demonstrate their sin, their corruption, and their injustice. And they are called the six woes. In a parallel to these six woes, in Matthew 23, Jesus lists seven woes that he brings against the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you know, those people who were supposed to be God's people living according to the original covenant plan of a life marked by devotion and obedience to God. And Jesus comes at these people with a rebuke, shining light onto their hypocrisy for living lives of religious piety while missing the heart of devotion to God and love for God's people. Jesus says to them, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. But just like in the message of judgment in Isaiah, Jesus doesn't leave it there. Judgment is not the final word. And like in Isaiah, it is the purifying fire, burning away that which is corrupt and leaving behind only that which is pure and making way for the seed of hope. In Matthew 23, Jesus gives one of his harshest critiques against those who are supposed to be called the people of God, but he doesn't leave on a note of judgment. After he lists the seven woes to God's wayward people, what does he finish by saying? Let's read verse 37 to find out. Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, You who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. So despite their hypocrisy, despite their repeated failures, despite their wicked hearts, Jesus' heart to them is soft. He has just given them the most scathing of performance reviews. But he follows up by saying that his heart is tender towards them and that he longs to gather his children like a mother hen under its wings. And we can only comprehend it by grace. Now, some people here might have seen my obnoxious photos from our recent holiday to Finnish Lapland. And for those who haven't, sorry, but I'm going to rub it in your face. (laughs) Um, So, you know, we had this most amazing holiday in the snow in Finland. And the day we were due to leave, there was heavy snow falling. So my little Australian brain cannot comprehend how airports continue to function in this kind of weather. But millions of people seem to manage every year. So despite the snow, we all got herded onto the plane. And you can see the view from our plane window on the right. Unfortunately, it was even too much snow for the Finnish airport to handle. So we spent this next three hours on the plane sitting on the ground at Helsinki Airport waiting for the weather to clear to take off. And our three-hour flight became a six-hour ordeal. It's a very tough life, I know. (laughs) I was actually sitting next to a young man. And as you do in these situations, we just started having a conversation. Um, Long story short, we got onto the topic of faith. This young man was actually a devout Muslim. And as it happened, the guy on the other side of him was an ardent Christian. And what can only be described as a God-appointed conversation, the three of us spent the next five hours in deep conversation about our various faiths. And in that time, we virtually covered all of the Christian faith system. We particularly talked about the similarities and differences between Christianity and Islam. We talked about the person of Jesus, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and in particular, the concept of grace. My new Muslim friend told me how he believes that Allah is merciful and forgiving. But then... We talked about this concept of grace, a concept which was completely foreign to him. I asked him about the fate of what would happen to someone who, on their deathbed, gave their life to God. 
And when I told him that under grace, that deathbed convert would find their way to heaven, he was shocked. His comment to me was, but that's unfair when I spent my whole life doing the right thing. You see, he didn't have a concept of grace. So I told him about the parable of the workers in the vineyard from Matthew 20, where day labourers in a vineyard are all paid the same amount, those who've worked all day and those who only worked an hour. And they had the same grumble. They said, that's unfair. The master's response to them was, are you envious? Because I am generous. Because we are not saved by our works, we are saved by grace. When we grasp the concept of grace... We realise that we're no different to the wayward Israelites. We're no different to the self-righteous Pharisees. And by grace, we will spend our entire lives this side of eternity being transformed to become more Christ-like, being transformed into the people God has called us to be. But until the day of completion, we will keep falling. We will all keep slipping. We will all fall back into unhealthy thought patterns. We'll fall back into pride. We'll fall back into comparison And we'll all fall back into the pattern of conforming to the world. But the beauty of grace is that when we fall, judgment is not the final word. And just as part two of Isaiah offers a message of hope, so we are also able to receive this hope. Because sin has been dealt with once and for all at the cross and the new era has begun. The time for hope is now. And through the suffering of the servant king, there is a new covenant and we live under grace. And we live in the confident expectation of the new creation where God's kingdom is seen on earth, where there is no pain, no suffering, and God's blessing flows out to all the nations of the world, just like Carly shared with us from Revelation. And while we wait, we have the Holy Spirit as a down payment of the promised glory that is coming. And by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we get a taste of heaven right here on earth. God with us. By the Holy Spirit living in us, we are not reliant on the prophets to tell us God's heart for us. Because we have direct access to the throne room of God. 2 Corinthians Corinthians 3 says, But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the spirit. How blessed are we, chapel, that we get to live in AD, Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. Because the original audience of the book of Isaiah were either living in the day of judgment or waiting for the day of hope. Chapel, we live in the day of hope. The servant king has already come and the new messianic covenant is here right now. And we are all invited to this new kingdom. The year of the Lord's favour is on us. Isaiah 61.7 says, Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land and everlasting joy will be yours. And that hope is ours through Jesus. Amen. Hey again, thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. Whether you are new and exploring your faith or a follower of Jesus, there's a next step for you. There is always room to grow, more to be done, destiny to be pursued and people to be reached. So what's your next step? To find out, head over to thechapelcollective.com.au And thanks again for listening.